Well, apart from checkers and chess, what's the most sold and recognized board game of all time? If you guessed Monopoly, you'd be right. Everybody knows and has played Monopoly, whether you like it or not. Maybe it's been years, but everyone has that memory of pulling out Monopoly on a rainy day and going around in circles forever until one person finally has hotels everywhere and forces everyone else into bankruptcy. And that's how Monopoly goes. One person gets rich, everyone else goes into bankruptcy. Imagine you're playing the game of Monopoly and, and you're set up pretty nice. You've got hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk, most expensive properties on the board. You also have hotels in all the greens and all the yellows, if you know what that means. So you have like a total nightmare zone set up. And it's just a matter of time before people land on your hotels and they're forced to fork over all of their money and you win the game. And that's what happens. One after another, you, you take everybody down. You've won the game. You've got a good $30,000 to your name, and that's it. And you feel pretty good. It feels nice to have $30,000. Now, just imagine, though, you take that $30,000 to a car dealership, and you tell them, hey, I've got $30,000 cash. I'd like to buy a brand-new car. You, pick out a, you pick out a new car. You start signing through all the paperwork. It comes time to pay, so you hand over to the dealer your $30,000, only it's in Monopoly money. And you can just imagine the look of shock and confusion and anger uh, the dealer would have, thinking, like, we, we don't accept that here. You can't buy a new car with Monopoly money. Your $30,000 is literally worth nothing. Now, I know you guys would never do this, but you can just imagine that the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment of a person being turned away for actually trying to buy a car with Monopoly money. You would never do this. But at the same time, you might be surprised to learn that in a manner of speaking, people do this with God every day. What do I mean? Well, tons of people go through life and they're storing up a currency for themselves before God. And this currency is works righteousness, self-righteousness. Most people know that to get right with God, to, to get into heaven, you need righteousness. And, and that's true, actually. You need to be righteous. And so they're storing some up. Where are they getting their righteousness? Well, from themselves. They earn it through good works and deeds and accomplishments. They give to the poor. They, they help the homeless. They throw in some religious deeds as well. You know, they, they go to church. They read their Bible. They, they, they give offering. They take communion. And sure, every now and then they might, they might sin or do something wrong, but it's not like they're a murderer. They're, they're a good person, and, and they've accumulated lots of spiritual credit in their bank. And so when the day comes and they stand before God, surely God will let them in. They've got all this credit stored up to get them into heaven. However, what will they really find? When they do stand before God, they will find that he doesn't accept their currency all the credit they've stored, all that works righteousness, to God, it's like monopoly money. It, it doesn't count. He doesn't accept it. It means nothing to him. And meanwhile, they still have this debt of sin to pay, but now they've found out they're bankrupt. Their own account is empty. They will still have to pay, and, and they'll have to pay for themselves now in judgment. And so it will go for all those who trust in themselves and who put confidence in themselves to deliver them before God, they will be rejected and turned away and they will experience that shame and humiliation of, of their sin. 
It's true. You do need righteousness before God. And it's true. The only way into heaven is to be righteous. The problem, however, is these people have the wrong currency. Works righteousness. Self-righteousness is not accepted by God. It counts for nothing. Instead, the only type of righteousness God accepts is perfect righteousness, namely Christ's righteousness. We don't have that. We're not perfectly righteous. We can never become or be perfectly righteous. We're all sinners. We already fall short of that standard. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, he's made Christ's perfect righteousness available for us to to get it for free. It can be credited to our account. How? How How do we attain this perfect righteousness? Well, it's not by works not by deeds or even religion. It comes in just one way, and that is by faith. Christ's righteousness is granted to us as a gift by faith. Now, I wonder, have you heard this before? I trust you have. I certainly hope you have. But at the same time, we have to remember, once upon a time, we we didn't know anything. Maybe you were just visiting a church or you're a new Christian, and you you hadn't heard about this, this, the importance of receiving Christ's righteousness. You've never thought about that before. But either way, i got to tell you, you have to know this. This is something you just must get. This is essential Christianity. This is at the very heart of the faith I trust you all profess to have. And if you get this wrong, if, if you have this wrong, you could be deceived. You could be lost. I don't want you to be the person that's trusting in the false currency of works righteousness to save them. Because our only hope is Christ and his righteousness. You need to know that and believe that to be saved. Now, it's one thing for me to to say all this, to make these claims. It's another for you to see this for yourself in Scripture. Don't take my word for it. You need to be convinced yourself in Scripture that your entire sum of your own righteousness, your, your works righteousness, counts for nothing before God. The only thing that counts is Christ and his righteousness, and we must gain by faith. And we are going to see this for ourselves in our passage for this morning, found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. So if you have your Bible and you care to follow along, you can open now to the book of Philippians chapter 3, looking at verse 9. We've been studying this passage in Philippians for a couple weeks now. And really, without exaggeration, it's one of the most monumental passages in the whole New Testament. Especially when it comes to the the necessity of gaining Christ's righteousness, there's no clearer passage. Really, this is it. This is the clearest passage on the necessity of, of gaining Christ's righteousness. And there's no one better to learn from than the Apostle Paul. Here's a guy more than anyone else who was trusting in himself to deliver him before God and his deeds. In a manner of speaking, Paul, through his efforts, he had accumulated more monopoly money uh, of works righteousness, just just trying hard to be a good person, than anyone else. When it came to works righteousness, obeying the law, following the rules, Paul was, was filthy rich. He had stored up so much credit. And here in verses 4 through 6, Paul reflects back in the time when he used used to boast in how much he had done, all that he had accomplished as this super devout Jew. He was 
holier than anyone else. And, and surely God would accept him because of his devoutness. His confidence was in his flesh, which is to say himself. He counted on these religious deeds and accomplishments to, to make him right with God. But then, as we learned, something happened. Something changed. Paul changed because he came to, to know Christ. And as the light of Christ shone on Paul and the veil lifted from his eyes, he could finally see everything clearly for the first time. And what did he see? Well, first, he came to see God's standard. He came to realize God doesn't let good people into heaven. There's no good people in heaven. He only lets, he only lets perfect people into heaven. You have to be perfectly righteous to be admitted into God's presence. And then Paul came to see his own bankruptcy. He, he doesn't meet that standard. He had accumulated all this credit as this devout Jew. But then in a moment he realized it was all the wrong currency. God doesn't accept any of this. Just keeping the law. It didn't earn him one single dollar's worth of, of credit before God. He thought being a good person, being a religious person, would make up for his sins, but he was sorely mistaken. He watched his bank account just drain, and there's nothing left. But then Paul saw, saw some, some good news, for he came to see Christ, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins and also to, to give us his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus came. The righteousness which can only be received by faith. And Paul came to realize all this on that day of his conversion. And he also came to believe. He came to that faith. Faith in Christ alone as his only hope. And so it's from Paul's true conversion experience, which he reflects on in this passage, Philippians 3, that we come to learn about true salvation ourselves. Because what happened to Paul, that's got to happen to you. This is the only way of salvation. You, this is the only way into the kingdom, so to speak. You too must deny all self-righteousness and instead receive Christ's righteousness alone by faith. Again, I hope you know this. I hope this is all old news to you. But at the same time, you might be surprised to learn how many people are out there who call themselves Christians, but, but they've, they've never heard this. They don't know this. They might even be on the wrong path, path of destruction, if they are still hoping in themselves, counting in themselves to save them. Because here is Christ, and he alone can save you, yet so many, they're still grasping onto all of this monopoly money, and it doesn't work. So how do you know that's not you, that you haven't been deceived, that, that you're on the narrow way that leads to life? Well, it's from Paul's personal example that we've been deriving these three checkpoints on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. For a couple weeks now, deriving these three checkpoints on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. You know, any race, any marathon has checkpoints. You've got to pass through them to make sure you're on the right course. You haven't gone astray. And these are, you could say, like salvation checkpoints. This is the only way. You have to pass this way. 
lest you be deceived. And if you've missed these in your own experience in coming to Christ, then it was time for you to open your eyes as well. The first, which we covered a couple weeks ago, number one, you must reject the flesh. You must reject the flesh. As Paul put it back in verse 3, you must have no confidence in the flesh, which is to say yourself. There always have been, and there still are, plenty of Christians who confuse doing Christian things with being saved. They think, well, look, I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I give money, I got baptized, I take communion, I'm a loving and kind and nice person. That makes me a Christian, right? And and therefore God will accept me because I, I do these things. Wrong. These deeds, even religious deeds, they don't pay for a single one of your sins. They, they don't make you righteous. Now, sure, these are things that we do as Christians, but not, not because they justify us before God. You have to come to the realization that you have an infinite sin debt before God because of your sins. You can go to church for a million years. You can read the Bible a million times, and it wouldn't pay for anything. It's not how it works. It's a different currency. And we're bankrupt. Christ, the rock, is our only hope to be saved. But if your hands are full of your own self-righteousness and and uh, self-works, well, you can't grab onto him. You can't latch onto Christ to be saved. You're, You're too full of yourself. And so we learn that first, you must cast down your flesh, which is to say you must reject confidence in yourself, your self-effort to save you. That's not the gospel of Christ. And secondly, well, you must gain Christ. The second checkpoint, you reject the flesh, cast it down, what you were holding, and then your hands are free to gain Christ. The bad news is we're in a debt and we can't save ourselves. But the good news is that Christ, the Savior, has come, and Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, to pay our sin debt in full, And now we can be saved, not because of what we've done, because of what he did. By virtue of his death and his resurrection, we can be saved. And for this, we must gain Christ, him, by faith. Spurgeon gave a great illustration on this, imagining an old English warship cruising the seas. It spots a a Spanish galleon in in the distance, It's laden down with gold and treasure I had just discovered. And so the English determined it to overtake the vessel and capture it for its treasure. But their own ship is is too heavy. They're they're weighed down with all of their possessions. So what will they do? Well, they will fling everything overboard, all the stuff that they used to value, but they will do so happily because they know that gaining this treasure, it's worth losing everything else. In fact, it was only slowing them down anyway. Compared to this treasure, everything they have, it's really just worth nothing. And they will happily lose it all to gain that treasure. And so it goes with the person who sees the value of Christ and who wishes to gain Christ. He or she she will happily throw overboard all that they used to live for, all they used to treasure and trust in to save them. All self-righteousness is forsaken and counted as loss for the sake of 
gain in Christ. Isn't that what we found last week in verses 7 and 8? If you're there, look, look at verse 7. Philippians 3, 7. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him. Well, we'll, we'll save that. Wait a second. We'll save verse 9 here. That was verse 8. Christ must be your only hope, your only treasure, and you must gain him by faith. But as you come to him empty and, and naked, so he will fill you and, and clothe you. And speaking of clothing us, this leads to our third and final checkpoint here that we're looking at. Our main focus for today, number three, you must receive righteousness. You must receive righteousness. And granted, this checkpoint goes back to back with the second, but it deserves extra special attention. Because as you come to Christ, empty and naked by faith, so he clothes you with his robe of righteousness. You, you exchange the filthy rags of works righteousness for his royal robe of perfect righteousness. This is what you need. And so, again, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And now, verse 9, it may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This verse is amazing grace. You know, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. We come to Jesus lost. First, we're found by Jesus. Then we're found in Jesus. That's what it means to be in him. And that's what this verse says, right? Verse 9, we are found in him. This means that God sees us now through the lens of Christ. Just think about that. We're not sinless, but Jesus is. And so now God views us as sinless in Christ. We're not righteous, but Jesus is. And God now views us as righteous in Christ. That's, that's how it works. And that's, that's the glory of the gospel, of being found in Christ. We call this grace because it comes as a gift from God. No one's entitled to this gift, this gift of righteousness, but God graciously gives it out. You notice at the end of verse 9, this righteousness comes from where? From God. The source of this saving righteousness is not ourselves. I mean, I don't see how Paul could be any clearer on this. He says, we do not have a righteousness of our own derived from the law. We, we don't gain righteousness by, by keeping the law or following the rules. Christianity is not a religion of rules, contrary to some legalistic churches. Like, we still have God's ethics and a standard for right living, of course, but, but keeping the standard, that, that doesn't make you righteous. Rather, the righteousness we need comes from God 
as a gift by faith in Christ. That's pretty clear in the verse as well, right? This righteousness, verse 9, it's received through faith in Christ. It comes from God on the basis of what? Faith. That's it. Does it say anything else? It's, It's just so clear. But it should make perfect sense. Since the only righteousness that saves is Christ and not our own, and since Christ's righteousness is given to us a, as a free gift, which should be obvious, the only means to receive such a gift is, is just faith. That's how you, you receive a gift. You just accept it. You don't earn it. You don't have to work for a gift or, or deserve it or pay for it. We just receive it. That's how a gift works. And this gift is received by faith, faith alone, which is to say trusting in Christ alone. So this is why I'm telling you, verse 9 here, it, it really is one of the most significant verses in, in all of Philippians. But it's actually so simple, and it's rather straightforward. What's hard to understand about this, that our own deeds of self-righteousness don't cut it before God, but our only hope is the righteousness of God, which is given to us in Christ by faith. That's the only means of being admitted into God's presence. I mean, do, do, we, do we need to say more? Well, we're going to say more. Again, this is the very heart of Christianity. It's sad, though, that so many Christians, they'll sit in churches their entire lives. They'll never once hear this preached. And that's a problem. Because, you, like I said, you need to know this. You have to just really wrap your whole mind around this righteousness issue. Let me put it this way. You ask most Christians, what does it take to be accepted by God? What does it take to get into heaven? And they'll say, sinlessness. Right? Well, that's, that's not enough. Did you know that? That's, it's not enough just to, to be sinless? Most Christians, they only think in terms of their sin. Look, Jesus died on the cross, right, to pay for my sins. You hear that? So I believe in Jesus. My sins are forgiven, right? Well, yeah, but... That's not enough. That's not all we need to be reconciled to God. Yeah, don't get me wrong. We need forgiveness, but we need something else. We need positive righteousness. Do you get that? We have a sin problem. That's our deficiency. We also have a lack of righteousness problem as well. Picture a corporate criminal guilty of embezzling money. He's sentenced to jail, but he he gets a presidential pardon and he goes free. Now, this person is legally considered not guilty for their crimes. Or at the very least, they're forgiven by the state. But does that make him righteous? No, I mean, he's forgiven, but he's not righteous. At best, he's like morally neutral, but it doesn't make him righteous. And likewise, forgiveness of sins takes us from being God's enemies to being morally neutral before God. But we need something else. More. We need an additional step to enable us to truly stand in his presence, in his kingdom. We need perfect righteousness. The Jews understood this in a way, but they thought they gained this righteousness on their own by keeping the law. That's how you, you gain that positive merit. But they misunderstood the law was never given as a means to gain righteousness. The law was given as a means of showing man his need for an outside righteousness, because we just, we just don't have it. All we do is violate the law. This is why Jesus himself 
made that stunning statement over in Matthew 5.20. Jesus said to the crowd, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you should be thinking, wait, the scribes and Pharisees, these are the most righteous guys around. How can, how can my righteousness surpass theirs? That, that's impossible. And that's the point. With man, this perfect righteousness is impossible, but not with God. And Jesus is trying to show us our need for an outside righteousness, his righteousness, which he came to offer. He does this too. All we need is him for forgiveness and righteousness. Now, look, this is a a lot to take in. Already said quite a bit. But like I said, you, you just you can't you can't leave this morning without getting your mind around this need for righteousness. So we're going to do one more thing. I want you to turn over now to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Really turn. So even if you have to grab a pew Bible, you can look in the table of contents if you need to, but just find your way to Romans 1. We're going to survey some things here. How well do you know that the book of Romans? Are you puzzled by it? Does it seem a, a bit complicated to you? It certainly is top shelf stuff. I remember being a new Christian and I didn't really understand Romans. Everyone kept saying, like, it's one of the most important books of the New Testament. There's so much good stuff in there and I just didn't get it. I was a new Christian. I didn't understand all these terms, like what is justification? What is all this stuff? There's so much I didn't understand. But you want to know something something kind of cool? Now, our verse here, back in Philippians 3.9, that, that's about as perfect a one-verse summary of the whole book of Romans as you'll get in the Bible. If you have trouble, just write Philippians 3.9 at the beginning of Romans. And that will, that will guide you through. That we are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians 3.9. That, that's pretty much the book of Romans. Of course, though, in Romans, Paul gives the much longer version of that, telling us what that means, why that's true, why you should care, how it should impact your life. But what I want to do now, just just with a little time here, is is, is develop and, and show you this theme of righteousness in the book of Romans. Because, again, it's so clear. So we're just going to do a little old-fashioned Bible study now to show you for yourself how this is such a big deal in, in scripture that we're not just making this up we start with the thesis of the book of romans you could say that his, his opening point which is found in chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 look there paul says for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek first off you get that This is the power of God for salvation. Where's that power found? God's power for salvation. It's not found in works or deeds or religion. It's found in the gospel, this gospel message. What's so special about this gospel message? Well, verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What makes this gospel message so special 
is that it's the means by which God's righteousness, his righteousness, is revealed and made available to you. How? By faith. That's what Romans is all about. Now you might think, why do we need this righteousness? I don't feel unrighteous. Well, look at the next verse, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, right after, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We need, God, we need God's righteousness because we're not righteous. That's why. All mankind is ungodly and unrighteous before God. Man has taken God's truth and exchanged it for a lie. He's gone his own way in rebellion to God's way. He's violated God's laws. He's fallen short of God's standard. And so he will be met with God's righteous wrath. When most people hear this, though, they think, Wait, okay, but that doesn't really apply to me. I'm not, like, unrighteous. I might not be perfect, but not, I'm not unrighteous. But flip to Romans 3. And what would you say to this? Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. Paul gets to a little early conclusion. He says, what then? Are we better than they, meaning Jews and Gentiles? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Paul pretty much spends chapters 1 through 3 convicting all people of sin. The depraved person is unrighteous and will meet God's wrath. But people say, well, I'm not depraved. Like, I'm a moral person. So chapter 2, the moral person is also unrighteous and falls short. When people say, but I'm not just moral, I'm a religious person. So chapter 3, even the religious person falls short. That's what the Jews thought. But they're still unrighteous. I mean, do you perfectly keep all of God's laws? No. So, so you stand condemned. The law doesn't save, it just condemns. All people are sinners, a fact made clear by the law, because you can't perfectly keep the whole thing your whole life. You've already blown it. And so verse 20 of chapter 3. Paul says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Jews believed they were justified or made right with God by what? By keeping the law. Just just obey the commands and you're good to go. Don't commit idolatry, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, so forth. But have you ever, have you ever told a lie? Or stolen something or, or lusted or gotten angry or just go down the list? Have you perfectly kept every command? Not even close. None of us have. And so we all stand condemned by this law. You're not justified. You're in the wrong. And you have to accept the bad news. You first have to humble yourself and just really accept the bad news that before a perfectly holy God, you're unrighteous. You are unrighteous and ungodly and deserve his righteous wrath. But there's good news. 
Thankfully, he doesn't end right there. That'd be depressing. But there's good news. And it's in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 21. He says right after this, But now, apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness, his, it's manifested, it's appeared, it's come, it's available. It's not found in the law, in keeping the law. It's found apart from the law. So where is it found? Where has God's righteousness been manifested? Next verse, verse 22. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. This is it right here. This is a big deal. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of of the glory of God. But for those who believe, who place their faith in Christ alone, they can be justified, which means you're right with God now. You're made right. You're made righteous. Like we said before, forgiveness is necessary. That, that is step one, but it's not enough. We also need perfect righteousness. And that righteousness, it's been manifested. It's come. In what form? In Christ. Christ is that righteousness. And so we must gain him by faith. Look, this stuff isn't new. Paul goes on and spends chapter four of Romans He uses the examples of Abraham and David to teach. This stuff isn't new. This has always been the only way of salvation, even in the Old Testament. How was Abraham justified or made righteous before God? By faith. David knew and saw the same thing. So look at chapter 4, verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. He says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. I mean, how clear is that? Credits righteousness by faith apart from works. The the key word here, of course, is credited, which means to reckon, to impute, Some of you here, your parents, you've got grown kids. You might remember when your grown kids were in college. Every now and then, they'd call you. Why would they call you? They needed something. What did they need? Money. They had a little bank account that was now empty. And so chances are you probably transferred some funds from your bigger bank account into their empty account. You credited them. And that's what this word means. And that's what God does for us. Our spiritual bank account, it's not just empty. We're in infinite debt. And so first, in Christ, God takes that debt, wipes it out. Your debt is gone. That's forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ did on the cross. We are forgiven of all that debt. Now our bank account is, is zero. That's good. It's not enough to get into heaven. But at the same time, and in addition, God also takes Christ's bank account, which is through the roof of righteousness, and he now credits that to your account at the same time. This is justification. And now, now you're rich. 
spiritually speaking, you have all that you need. You're justified. You're able to stand in God's presence. You have what it takes to be with God. And because of this, we have peace. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. The big word, therefore, in light of all this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Finally, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? Is there a greater peace than peace with God? Being saved from wrath, being delivered into his eternal kingdom. Everybody wants peace in life, and that's not wrong. It's not it's not a bad thing. It's just most are looking for it in all the wrong places. Some want peace in health. They just want to say, it is well with my body. If I'm just healthy, I'll be okay. I'll have peace. Some look for peace in their bank account. If it is well with my bank account, I'll be okay. I, I can buy peace and security. Just I need enough money and I'll be okay. But you know, these are false and fleeting sources of peace. And so the only peace that matters is peace with God, where you can say, it is well with my soul. If you know that you're going to inherit eternal life, what's there really to worry about? Nothing. And this is what justification brings, peace with God. It's gained in Christ through faith by God's grace. And it really is a marvel of God's grace because you realize this is God's righteousness. He's giving it to us. We don't deserve this. You see that part too? This is like, we, we don't deserve this. This is just God's love. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. If you don't admit you're ungodly, you're saying Christ didn't die for you because he only died for the unrighteous. Verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. That's not us. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Remember that wrath revealed against all unrighteousness. Now we're saved. This is just a snapshot of Romans, really. There's so much more in here about the righteousness of God. The rest of chapter 5, Paul builds this contrast between the first Adam, whose one act of sin resulted in condemnation to all, and the second Adam, Christ, whose one act of righteousness resulted in justification to all who believe. And then in chapters 6 through 8, Paul goes on to talk about how we live now in light of this righteousness, now that we have been justified, here's how we live. That's chapter 6 through 8, where we are able to live righteously in Christ by the Spirit. Oh, that's huge. We don't have time for it all. So we'll wrap up this survey, just one more passage. Humor me. Turn to Romans 10. One more here. Here in chapter 10, Paul is praying for a salvation of national Israel, his people, who are cut off in unbelief. Where did they go wrong? The Jews. How come they rejected Christ? What, how did they fall? Chapter 10, verse 3. 
He says about them, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is why it's so important, because there are people still today who they don't know about God's righteousness. They're still seeking to establish their own through law-keeping. The laws have changed. Like, forget circumcision. We've got baptism and communion. We've got a new version of laws. But they're still thinking, if I just do these things, I'm righteous. And that this is how the Jews miss the boat. And how many people today, you can call yourself Christian, but they, they miss the, the ship. It has sailed without them. The Jews, they stumbled, stumbled over the law. They lived their whole lives believing they were special because they had this law and they were special. But they mistakenly believed this law could save them. They were, they were good law keepers. Their confidence was in their flesh. But they failed to realize, Romans 8, those in the flesh cannot please God. There's no hope in the flesh, in your ability to do good. There's only hope in, in Christ by faith. And so Paul goes on to say, look at verse 6 now, chapter 10, verse 6. He says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Now I'm going to take a little wager and say, those verses are probably a bit confusing to you. And you're thinking like, what? What, what did I just read? What is all this business about ascending into heaven, descending into the abyss? Like, what's he trying to say here? I'll summarize. You do some study, you find Paul is actually making a very simple point in those verses. He's teaching on the nature of true faith. True saving faith. We're justified by faith, right? So what, what does real faith look like? Well, he tells you what it doesn't mean, what, what it doesn't look like. True faith doesn't mean you've got to go on some great pilgrimage or accomplish some miraculous task. That's not faith. Gaining Christ by faith doesn't require some impossible task like ascending into heaven or descending into the abyss to try and find Jesus. The point is, look, Christ and salvation, they're not far away. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth to find it. Rather, it's near. It's near you. How near? He says, right in your own mouth and in your own heart. That's how near this faith is. What does that mean? Well, here's what it takes to gain Christ and to receive his righteousness. Verse 9. Now the famous verse, Romans 10. Look at verse 9. He says right after this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And with this, we just, we just come full circle. Back to Philippians 3, 9. That we may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
This, this is essential Christianity. This is true Christianity. It's taught by no one else. No other religion or worldview teaches salvation by grace through faith like this. This is the only gospel. And when you understand your sin before God, your unrighteousness before God, you realize there can be no other way. Justification by faith in Christ is our only hope. And what is this faith like we just read? It's complete and utter confidence in Christ. We're not talking about mouthing a few words. Anybody can do that. We're not talking about just repeating some sinner's prayer after a preacher. This faith must be in your heart. And it's, it's the complete conviction that Christ is your only hope. And you confess him as Lord and Savior. That true confession will change your life. It will radically reorient your life. You abandon ship and you swim to his boat. And he's captain and you're sailing where he's going. You're on his ship now. Your life is in his hands. That's faith. You're not still on your own boat doing your own thing. You're now Christ's. You're, he's your Lord. You're trusting in him. That's the only boat that's going to make it to heaven's shores. I'm with him now. That This is faith, real faith. And so all that's left to ask is, have you done this? We spent all this time this morning trying to explain the gospel. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to reject the flesh, gain Christ, receive his righteousness. And you do this by faith. So have you have you done this? Have you have you lost everything to gain him? It's all you need, it's all that matters. And I'd urge you if you haven't to cry out to Christ right now. Uh, today is still the day of salvation. And then continue to rest in Christ's righteousness. Live in the peace that he gives. This is a, a hugely important takeaway for those who have believed. You know, some Christians feel like they have to walk on eggshells around God. They believe in Jesus and all. Yeah, they know they're forgiven, but they, they still, they're struggling with sin. Maybe they're, they're really struggling with sin. And they're just under this impression that if they just screw up enough, God's going to reject them. Like he's he'll, he's going to change his mind about them and, and turn them away and turn away from them. After all, how many times can you keep doing that same sin? You know it's wrong, but you keep falling into that same sin. I mean, how many times can you do that before God just is fed up with you? So they think. But look, you are not supposed to live in fear like this. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not talking about the person who's living in open rebellion and unrepentant sin without any uh, care. That person should be afraid. Not that Christ can't forgive them, but that they may not be truly born again. Because when you come to believe in Christ, you gain a Lord. And that involves turning away from sin. But if you are counting in Christ, you've given him your life, you follow him, then be at peace. Enjoy life in peace. You have peace with God. Realize you're no longer his enemy. He knew knew, knew who you were. You, he, you were his enemies when Christ died for you. He knows you're, you're still a sinner. But now he's adopted you into his family through your faith in Christ. And that, that's a permanent adoption. He doesn't change his mind about that. God sees you as if you were as righteous as his son. 
Look, we still sin. God still hates sin. Now in Christ, we strive against it all the more from a, from a genuine heart of worship. But remember, we're no longer under wrath. We're no longer under wrath. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. By faith, our sins have been covered by Christ's robe of righteousness. And now God sees us as righteous as his son. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's good news indeed. God wants us to live in the confidence being found in Christ that we might live for him. So reject the flesh, gain Christ, receive his righteousness, and live now in the joy of this gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, truly hallowed be your name. Your name is the name above all names, the name to be praised for for all things. But I think we would say in chief, this gospel, this message of good news. This is where, Lord, you have placed your power for salvation. It's in the good news of Christ. This good news is, is magnified by the bad news that, Lord, we, we confess we are sinners. We have violated what is right. We do wrong. We still do wrong daily. And we fall short. We are unrighteous. Lord, you are perfectly holy. You dwell in unapproachable light. And in our sins, we cannot approach. But in contrast to this darkness, Lord, that you sent the light of Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead for our justification, Lord, that those who would turn from their sins and believe in him might be saved, justified, forgiven, and made righteous. It's, in a way, it can be hard to wrap our minds around, even though it's so simple. But I pray, Lord, that we here, we would respond with, with this true faith, casting down ourselves, our flesh, our efforts, our deeds, just coming empty and naked to Christ as Savior, as Lord, being clothed with his robe of perfect righteousness. This is, this is glory, Lord, and we thank you for this that you have brought us to peace with you, adopted us into your family, and given us hope. We now have hope and joy in life that those in the world will never know or can't know. We pray that they do. We pray that all come to know this and come to know Christ and the gospel. And may we in turn now live out this gospel and live out to share the good news of Christ with the world. that They need to hear about the righteousness which is found in God. Lord, thank you for this morning, and I pray these truths really impact our hearts and stay with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.